Tonight we are going to shift um, our attention to Jehovah's Witnesses. And as we do, I would like you to take your Bible, and I hope you do have your Bible, and open it to the book of Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1. I'm going to give you some introductory verses, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of Jehovah's Witnesses. I hope that you'll be asking questions on the app. Because what I'd like to do is the specific texts that you have questions about, the Bible verses that you may have wrestled with with a Jehovah's Witness, or maybe you have your own questions, I'd like you to uh, go ahead and ask that question, and that will largely drive you know, how I can help us, uh, hopefully, through you know, uh, delineating and getting uh, clarity on these texts. But let's pray one more time. Well, Father, we are here tonight to honor your name, and we are here to celebrate the gospel of grace found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel is about a person. It's about God who came down to save us, God the Son, who came down to save his people from their sins. And thank you that that was announced really in the birth narratives of Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And the devil, Lord, we know we're in the devil's territory tonight. The devil has been a master counterfeiter from the beginning twisting the truth of God, masquerading as an angel of light. And uh, we know that this is where he works and what he does. And we know spiritual warfare is real. And it is largely fought in the battle for ideas. And so tonight, sharpen our minds, Lord. Uh, just help us to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and put on the full armor of God as we take our stand against the schemes of the devil and certainly he does attack the mind. That's why we have a helmet, uh, a helmet that is to protect our mind, a helmet of salvation that ties to the gospel. And so tonight, Lord, we just want to lay what happens at your feet. We pray that you would do abundantly beyond what we could ask or imagine. Anchor us more in the truth of who you are so that we can more, be more equipped to be more effective in this world. And we give you the glory in Jesus' holy and matchless name, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the euangelion. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. For it, the gospel, Romans 1.16, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. From the get-go, I know some of you asked the question, is it even a worthwhile venture to engage a cult member because... Uh, can you really win them? Do Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons actually come out of the religion? They do. In fact, we have people who are here in this congregation who are former Jehovah's Witnesses. We do have one, at least that I know of, sitting here tonight. And there may be more. They do come out, but I would tell you that it is not an easy process. And the reason that it's not an easy process is because they are heavily indoctrinated. They say that the key time to win a cult member out of a cult is really at the beginning when they're first being courted by a cult to try to get to them quickly, to try to warn them, to try to uh, engage them before they get too deep into it. And then sometimes the other time that you can win a cult member is when they've been in it a long time and it hasn't produced what was promised. But Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons... Um, are difficult to reach because they tend to see everything through the lens of the indoctrination that they have received. Now, there's a good indoctrination. The church catechizes people. We try to ground people in the essentials of the historic Christian faith. That's what we do. 
But there's a bad type of indoctrination, especially if it's around lies. And as I mentioned in the prayer, we do have a master counterfeiter. His name is Satan, and he does battle in the realm of ideas. You may not think of that. You may not think of spiritual warfare in that vein, but just think about all the false religions of the world. Think about their founders. Think about how uh, they describe the founding of the religion. Think about, you know, some of the founders of these world religions and cults said that they met an angel or they, they got some sort of angelic visit or some sort of insight from who they would describe as God or Jesus Christ. And so we do know that this does happen. And, and when you peel the layer back, I think you can see uh, what's going on. Now, the other thing I want to show you is in 2 Corinthians, a little bit to your right. I want to give you just uh, quickly some verses that highlight the issue for us in terms of dealing with cults and the occult. Let me just define some terms for you. First of all, when I say the word cult, that in the past did not have what we call a pejorative meaning, meaning that it wasn't really a negative term. The word cult in its original meaning has the idea of people who polarize or gather around a common belief system. However, in, as Christian theologians began to deal with the uprising of cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism, a new definition came forth of a cult. And a cult is a group that either claims to be the one true church exclusively, so they say everything else is false, we are the only way, our church is the only way, or they deny or distort one or more of the fundamental doctrines of the historic Christian faith. Here's an example. Uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Trinity. The bodily resurrection. These are what we would call essential doctrines. Denominations within the Christian faith disagree on what we would call non-essential doctrines. So, the mode of baptism, for example. We could talk about the timing of the rapture. We could talk about premillennialism and amillennialism. We could talk about uh, disagreements within how salvation actually works. There are people who are in different camps uh, regarding that. But when a group comes along and attacks the deity of your Lord and tries to redefine his nature, now we are moving in areas where you, we have to die on those hills. Because what's at stake is everything. If you don't have the right Jesus, you can be wrong enough to lose your soul. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, Paul's, Paul says, And if our gospel is veiled, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Would you notice when the gospel is veiled to somebody, they are what? They are perishing. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. They will have everlasting life. What's at stake is that the enemy does use these things to veil the gospel. And if it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are dying without Christ. In whose case, would you notice, the God of this world, I think most scholars believe that's uh, Satan, of this world has blinded, key, key phrase here, the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is what's at stake. We want people to see the light of the gospel. When Paul got a commission from Jesus Christ, 
Jesus told Paul, I want you to move people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I want you to preach the word in season and out of season. I want you to rebuke, convince, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come, and it is here, when men will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will heap up to themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. This has been the history of mankind and it has been the battle of the church. In fact, some of you have gotten into church history. You know that many of the early uh, church fathers were actually considered apologists. They weren't apologizing for the Christian faith, by the way. They were making an argument. They were taking on heretics. They were trying to defeat false ideas. This happened early on when the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, if you move over to 2 Corinthians 10, uh, came along. His name is Charles Taze Russell. And he was uh, born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, grew up in the area of Allegheny. And uh, what happened with Charles Taze Russell is a very similar story to what happened with Joseph Smith. When we get to Mormonism, I'll tell you about the history of Mormonism. But what happened with Charles Taze Russell is that he grew up as a Congregationalist. And he grew up in a time when the church, at least some segments of the church, were preaching a lot of hellfire and brimstone messages. And he was a teenager at the time. And so there was a lot of, uh, you know, just, let's just put it bluntly, stuff that was over the top within the church. And it started to turn some people off. Hellfire and brimstone was being preached, eternal suffering and all of that. And while those doctrines, we, we do hold those doctrines, uh, they were beat on and people were screamed at. And a lot of people like Joseph Smith and Charles Taze Russell became kind of, you know, turned away from the church. And so he went on a search. And uh, he says at one point in his own testimony that he kind of started to lose his faith. He was losing his faith in the historic creeds of the church. So he went on a search and he ran into some Adventists. These are Millerites. And uh, the names kind of changed. But, but basically he, re- he ran into some people in the early days of Seventh-day Adventism. And Seventh-day Adventism, if you know anything about them, they are very apocalyptic, much like the Jehovah's Witnesses are. And he started to hear some preaching about the second coming of Christ, about the return of the Lord, the return of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it kind of sparked his interest. But he did not believe in the Trinity. He did not believe in the deity of Christ. He believed in soul sleep. A lot of the doctrines that were taught in Adventism and are taught today were embraced by Charles Taze Russell. When you peel back layers of people and you begin to look at influences, if you want to know something about somebody, ask them who they read the most. Ask somebody, who are your major influences? Who are your go-to people when you study doctrine and theology? You'll find out a lot about how people got their ideas. Well, Charles Tez Russell was no different. He was an impressionable teenager. He was listening to Seventh-day Adventist-type teaching. They were very apocalyptic. They were predicting the end of the world in the mid-1800s. Then they changed the date to the mid-1870s and so on and so on. Well, Charles Taze Russell said that the Lord invisibly appeared in 1874. You would say, well, why would he say such a thing like that? Because Charles Taze Russell believes that when Christ was resurrected, he doesn't believe in a... Of course, he's dead now. So I should, I should talk in somewhat past tense, although he's alive somewhere, right? But anyway... 
He didn't believe in a physical bodily resurrection. He denied the bodily resurrection. He believed that Jesus was resurrected in spirit form and he was invisible. So that's why he can be invisibly reigning since 1874. And if you make a prediction about the second coming of Christ and say that he started to invisibly reign, it's hard to prove that out empirically. Are you with me? I mean, how do, you, how do you test something like that? Okay, you say he's invisibly reigning in 1874, then, well, there you go. So there's your founder of Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, Charles Taze Russell um, had some legal issues, and I don't want to beat on this horse, but I think some of you who have studied this know that he went through a divorce, his wife divorced him, he started a magazine and all of that. But one of the biggest um, historical cases that we have about the honesty of this man was when a preacher took him on, uh, Charles Taze Russell was uh, appointed as a pastor. He, did, he really, not done by a presbytery, he had no formal education, but he was appointed as a pastor. And there was a, a pastor in the area who took him on and started to take on his ideas and he put it in print. He put out a warning to the sheep and uh, Russell sued him for libel. He said he was defaming him. And so the case actually went to court and it was, uh, it was public record. And one of the things that, w that Charles Taze Russell claimed was that he was an official pastor, that he knew the original languages. So he was suing this pastor for libel, that he had defamed him. So uh, Russell took the witness stand in this court case, and it is uh, public doc publicly documented. And uh, the attorney for the pastor said, do you know Greek? And Russell said, oh, yes, I do. And he held up some Greek letters and said, can you tell me this letter in Greek and Russell began to squirm on the witness stand and he said well my way of doing things then he was cut off from answering and then the the attorney again said do you know this letter and Russell had to sheepishly say no and then he admitted that he did not know Greek and then he admitted that he was not ordained by an official presbytery and and that so the court case brought out a little bit of the lack of integrity of this man and he is the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses who denies every essential doctrine that we hold dear. Um, what you need to know is that when these cults arise, I think in most every case I can think of, they attacked the church before we responded to them. So Charles Taze Russell said the doctrine of the Trinity was from hell. He denied every essential doctrine. He came out in print saying it. So the church responded to this man. When we do apologetics, that's typically what we're doing, is we're responding to heresy. We're, we're defending the historic Christian faith against people who want to redefine the nature of God and the nature of salvation. So he began, uh, he bought into a magazine and he began to produce uh, the Watchtower, the Herald of Christ's Presence, very apocalyptic, date-setting, um, I won't get into this tonight, but I'll give you the list if you want. They've predicted the end of the world, the return of Christ, the return of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob multiple times, and their track record is their batten zero, zero, zero. Every time they set a date, they were wrong. They set uh, dates over and over and over again. They were wrong every time. Every time they were wrong, a whole group of Jehovah's Witnesses would leave the religion and then they came out with an article, and they do much of their communication through the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, and especially the Watchtower magazine. They castigated their people for independent speculation. The whole time, they were the ones that set the dates. The Watchtower set the dates. They got their people hyped up. People didn't go to college, 
didn't receive scholarships, you know, didn't go on with their family plans. They set all these dates, disappointed all these people, uh, were proved to be a false prophet, and then they came out with an article and blamed their people for independent speculation. That makes me want to jump up and down and scream. They did the old bait and switch on their people. And a lot of their people who are going to door-to-door to door today don't even know the number of false prophecies that they've predicted. What happened is upon the death of uh, Charles Taze Russell, by the way, he died on Halloween. I don't know if that's God's sense of humor or not. Uh, and some of you have seen a burial site where uh, he's buried in a graveyard where there's a pyramid. And he said that the pyramids gave insight into dates about the second coming. And he did measurements and then used a starting date. And of course, that proved to be wrong. But there's, there's a kind of a little ironic, I guess, justice there. So the, the judge, who was a, a lawyer for Charles Taze Russell, took over. There was a big power grab upon the death of Russell. But Judge Rutherford won the day, kind of split off some, from other splinter groups. And he took the Jehovah's Witness organization to the next level. And... Uh, he began to do some different things to kind of set them apart. One of the things that you'll find with Jehovah's Witnesses is that they will tell you that they don't celebrate any pagan holidays. So they won't celebrate Easter, Christmas, their own birthdays. And I'll answer some of those questions for you if you're uh, interested. Just remember to go ahead and put your questions in. But there's, this is a picture, and this, this picture is from 1926. This is the headquarters of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in Brooklyn, New York. They're having a Christmas party. And there are three presidents. Judge Rutherford is there. You can see the numbers. He's kind of in the back there. Uh, N.H. Knorr, a future president, and F.W. Franz. Three presidents of Jehovah's Witnesses are having a Christmas party. Jehovah's Witnesses have been famous for changing their doctrine over and over again. They've changed their minds about organ transplants. They've changed their minds about vaccinations. At one time, they would not allow their children to be vaccinated. Then they changed their position. I think they have a bat phone somewhere. It, when it, you know, it rings and uh, the, the person on the line says, Ali, Ali, oxen free. People can now get vaccinations, okay? Uh, for a while, they said no transplant of organs. Then they changed their mind. The bat phone rang, Ali, Ali, oxen free. And now you can get a transplant. The latest has been the whole debate about blood transfusions. And uh, in this book, and I would recommend if you're interested in going into some depth on this subject matter, get this book called Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's authored by Ron Rhodes. Ron Rhodes. I'll show it to you later if you don't have it. And um, one of the, the accounts that's here about blood transfusion is a very real story. And this, this comes up, so I want you to just hear about it. Witnesses Leonard and Marjorie uh, Critain comment about blood transfusion. One man told of the heart-rending decision he was forced to make between his religion and the life of his child. His baby boy was born with a serious hernia. An immediate operation was required to save the child's life, but that would require a blood transfusion. Jehovah's Witnesses are taught that this is against God's law, and the penalty for not obeying this rule at that time was removal from the organization Isolation from all friends and family called disfellowshipping uh, members who are witnesses. The heartbroken father chose to obey God's law and two days later his baby boy died. Uh, and many of these stories came out. So the Jehovah's Witnesses are now saying that you can receive platelets. 
You can receive, uh, I, I don't know if they call it partial blood or whatever they call it. You just now, now you cannot receive whole blood transfusions. But you can receive plate, platelets and plasma and that kind of thing. If it's partial but not whole. And do you know why this is happening? Because over the history of Jehovah's Witnesses, this has become about the almighty dollar. You see, when these things happen and people get wake-up calls and realize they've been duped at the expense of the life of a loved one, what do they do? They sue. And Jehovah's Witnesses have changed their positions on vaccinations, organ transplants, um, blood transfusions. They're moving you know, slowly in that direction. And let me ask you a question. If you were a parent who denied a blood transfusion to your child and then 10 years later you realize Jehovah's Witnesses changed their position, what do you... How are you going to feel about that? You're going to say, so, so basically what I did was I, I sacrificed my child for revelation that you said you got from God. And my child's dead and now you changed your position. My goodness. This is heart-wrenching stuff. Well, Christmas is another example. They have, there's early documentation that they even said wishing people a Merry Christmas is fine. It's not a big deal to celebrate the birth of Christ. And then they change their position on this. And now they make it sound like if you do it, you know, you're going to hell. Um, they are very apocalyptic and they, they, much of their, um, their literature either attacks the Christian church, the Catholic church, or gives an apocalyptic kind of feel. Armageddon, what is it? When will it come? Expose six myths about Christianity. Uh, I'll come back to this in a second. Should you believe in the Trinity? A, uh, their own attack on you know, the Trinity and, and, and is it defensible within uh, Christian doctrine and so forth. So um, this is, this is kind of how they go at things. Now, there's a property here that some of you have seen. See Beit Serim or Beth Serim. This means House of the Princes, and they actually bought this property in uh, 1929. They bought it to prepare for the arrival of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on the earth, which they predicted they would come in 19... Well, maybe they bought it earlier, because I think they said 1925. And uh, just, just so you know, it goes without saying, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have not shown up. So they've had this property for quite a long time, and now it's become a historical landmark. Uh, pretty cool digs for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'd say it's in San Diego and, you know, pretty, pretty nice uh, place to hang out. But uh, this is just another example of their failed prophecy and how they go about business. They, uh, they seem to, to flip on doctrinal issues and they get people hyped up and uh, so forth. So I want to remind you how you can do your questions now. I'll, I'll leave that up there so you can ask your questions. But... Um, that's, that's the organization. Now, if you're at 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 10, look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations. That's the idea of thought, right? And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Notice that fortresses is plural. The way we battle is we have divine weapons. We have the word of God as our primary weapon. We destroy speculations, things that are going against the knowledge of God. Just go over to the next chapter. Look at 11.3. 
I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, connect 11.3 with 10.3-5, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Paul was speaking in irony. You put up with this and you shouldn't. There is, look at verse 4, another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. So that's what's at stake. Salvation is what's at stake. And Jehovah's Witnesses preach another gospel and another Jesus. Here, simply put, Jehovah's Witnesses teach, and I'm going to try to stick with the essentials because doing this in one night, obviously there's a lot to cover. Jehovah's Witnesses say this about the atonement of Christ. They believe Jesus died on the cross, but they believe his death on the cross only has made the way possible for salvation. So here's how, what they say. They say Jesus' death on the cross, and they actually say a torture stake now. By the way, at one time they said it was a cross. Then they changed it to a torture stake to once again differentiate themselves from Christianity. They say that death on the cross makes it possible for you to be right with Jehovah if you work hard for the organization, keep yourself within God's laws and do the right thing, then maybe Jehovah will remember you and resurrect you. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that when you die, you don't go to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. They teach when you die, you go into a soul sleep, unconscious soul sleep. And you are there awaiting a hopeful resurrection if you did enough good things. If you did not do enough good things, they believe that you never wake up from that soul sleep. It is a uh, annihilation is your end. So you either get resurrected to a kingdom paradise or you get annihilated and you won't know. So imagine the average Jehovah's Witness comes knocking at your door and some of you pull the shades down and act like you're not home. <laughs> no, where they are? Right? But that person knocking at your door believes that when they die, they go into a soul sleep and they have no idea whether they will ever make it. Now, is that hope? Now, you are supposed to give a reason for the hope that you have. If you witness to a Jehovah's Witness, your goal should be to give them hope. They ain't got none. They are at your door because they are mandated by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society out of Brooklyn, New York to go to your door. They're not there necessarily for you. They're there for them. They believe that they have to go door to door. Now, somebody was telling me earlier in the courtyard, Pastor Michael, you know, it's interesting. Cult members do more for a lie than most Christians are willing to do for the truth. I agree. They're very zealous very nice people in many instances. But look, the reason they're at your door is not as honorable as you might think. Uh, I even had somebody call me one day and say, hey, the Jehovah's Witnesses are out today and it's raining and pouring and they're out there with little kids and they're still going door to door. 
come sleet, come snow, come rain, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Why do they do that? They do that because they believe that's the only way they're going to wake up resurrected from soul sleep. Would you be motivated? I'm either waking up or I ain't. I mean, when you get down to brass tacks, you're going to work as hard as you can. If that's what's at stake, if how many doors I knock on is either going to determine whether I'm in paradise or not, and then get this. They believe if they end up in the millennial reign of Christ in paradise and they mess up, God can just annihilate them on the spot anyway. <laughs> so you make it in and it's happy day. I'm behind the gate. Yeah. But don't mess up because all of a sudden, zap! And you just melt like the wicked witch of the West. What a world! What a world! <laughs> anyway, sorry. That was... Look at verse 13, chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Now, you guys have been shooting questions up here, and I'm going I'm to go to them in a second. But I want to give you, some of you are wondering about tactics, and then we'll, we'll try to get into as many scriptures as we can, looking at your questions. But I want to give you some tactical advice um, other than chasing them off your property, <laughs> which, which may be the right thing to do in certain, certain circumstances. Uh, if you have a big dog, that could work as well. But um, I, don't, I don't recommend that. Of course, if you want to interact with them, here's what I think you should do. And uh, I'm going to give you some do's and don'ts that came from the great Walter Martin and... Uh, I think that they're going to help you tactically. And if you're taking notes tonight, do's and don'ts about how to deal with Jehovah's Witnesses. So I'm almost there. Uh, here we go. Number one, I'm going to start with the don'ts. Don't jump around to multiple texts and subjects. Don't jump around to multiple texts and subjects. If you get a Jehovah's Witness at your door and they want to talk theology and you are talking about John 1.1 or John 17 or whatever the text may be, Revelation 3.14, stay there. And if they try to run away from it, call them on it. If they try to say, but what about this verse? Say, but what about the one I just gave you? Don't jump all over the place. And this would be true, I think, in a lot of witnessing encounters. Stay focused, stay on track, and stay Focused on the essentials as much as possible. Who is God and how do you get saved? After all, isn't that what matters the most? I don't mind debating the birthday thing, saluting the flag, serving in the military, you name it. I can talk to them about blood transfusions, but in the end, is that going to save them if I prove them wrong? I don't think so. I think what's, it may give them some doubt about the organization's teaching, which could be you know, a stepping stone. But I would say try to stick on texts that talk about the nature of God and the nature of salvation. Don't, number two, approach a Jehovah's Witness with a spiritual chip on your shoulder. It's not going to work. They will sense it right away. If, you, if they come to your door and you say something like this, oh, you're the organization that... Uh, you, you deny the deity of Christ, you think you're going to soul sleep, and you guys, you're the ones that... I know what you... They're just going to go, 
have a nice day. But if you say something like this, oh, you want to talk about the Lord? Sure, I, I love talking about the Lord. Do you know there, there were some people in Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they said they went door to door for decades. They never had one Christian, not one. And they said they were at probably thousands of doors. Not one Christian ever shared their testimony or shared the true gospel with them. Not one. They ended up coming out anyway. But they said, never did we run into a Christian who simply just said, you know, this is what the Lord's done in my life. It was always a Christian attacking them. And so they never really even got to hear the truth from a, a Christian's lips. And we need to do that. Don't, don't have this attitude. I know I have the truth, so you are less than me. Or don't intellectually look down your nose at them and think they're stupid. There's a lot of very bright, intellectually sharp Jehovah's Witnesses. But they've been in it a long time. And so you can reason with them from the scriptures. Number three, don't lose your patience. Stick to the scriptures and show them God's love and grace. Vicki, you told me this the other day. You said that when you were a Jehovah's Witness, you never experienced the love of Jesus Christ. True? So you have to know that showing them the love of Christ, even as you speak the truth in love, is going to be Something that maybe they've never known before. They know work, work, work. They know be good, be good, be good. They know I got to do enough. That's what they know. They don't know anything about grace. They don't hear much about the love of Christ. So stick to those subjects and I think you'll make some headway. Um, if they think you're angry, uh, if they get an impression that you're looking down on them, you have a chip on your shoulder, you're probably not going to be terribly effective. Here's some do's. Do identify with Jehovah's Witnesses. Dr. Martin says, you must, you must convince him or her that you consider him to be a person in his own right, worthwhile, basically honest, and not trying to put something over on you. Cultists are people before they are cultists. They have families. They have children. They have needs. They have frustrations. They have fears. They are brothers and sisters in Adam, though not in Christ. Not yet. But we want to win them to be brothers and sisters in Christ. They're our human family, right? And we want to win them to be our family in Christ. So identify with them. Know that you have a, you have a mom and a dad. You have, sometimes they're with little kids. These are people, right? You've got to see them as people that can be one. Another do. Do labor persistently with Jehovah's Witnesses. Never give up unless he or she decisively refuses further contact. Until they pull the plug, says Martin, we need to hang in there, remembering that the Lord blesses his word. As you share God's word, trust that God is at work. His word does not come back void. His word is sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. You might not see fruit in the moment, but it can percolate in their souls. It can be a seed that germinates in time. A lot of you who first heard the gospel, did you get saved right on the spot? No. I've never had a Jehovah's Witness fall on his knees and say, Pastor Michael, I've seen the light. Hallelujah. Let's pray right now. But I had a sense in many conversations that I was chipping away. I had a sense that I was getting them to think and question. And that's what I want them to do. Not to undermine their way of life, but to get them to the true Christ. Do make every effort to answer the questions of Jehovah's Witnesses. Share what you believe and why you believe it. And if you don't know the answer, be honest and tell them. You'd be happy to meet with them again and talk with them some more. And then go and do your homework 
and then come back to them. There are, uh, there are some difficult Bible texts that they bring up. And if you haven't done your homework on these Bible texts, you may not be able to give an answer in that moment. And so just be honest and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to look that one up and then give an answer for the hope that you have. And then finally, the last do. Do allow Jehovah's Witnesses to save face. If you won the argument, if you showed them and they've got no way to respond to you, give them a little wiggle room. Don't start doing your touchdown dance and slamming the football. And <laughs> I beat Jehovah's Witness. Bring your family out. No, that's not what we want to do. Give them some wiggle room, something like this. You know what? Uh, I know that this is maybe something new for you. I would encourage you to go back and really take another look at this. And I'd be happy to meet with you again. Let them save face, Right? Because if you don't, if you don't show them the love of Christ, you can win an argument but lose a soul. And that's not what we want to do. Now, you've got uh, quite a few questions that have come up to me. So here they go. I'm going to read them and then try to respond. One, what is the draw that so many people would want to join Jehovah's Witnesses? They do seem like Bible-believing, honest, warm, and sincere folks. How can they be tricked in the way that they are? You know, this is the uh, question that comes up all the time, isn't it? How do people end up in these organizations? Some of them grow up in them. Uh, many Scientologists who are today's Scientologists grew up in it. A lot of Jehovah's Witnesses grew up in Jehovah's Witnesses. But I'll tell you this. The Jehovah's Witnesses are extremely effective at taking nominal Christians. Please hear this well. Christians who don't know their Bible, haven't been in church a long time, they come to the door, They're, they seem to be compassionate, sincere, they want to do a Bible study, they talk about Jesus, they talk about the Lord, they talk about salvation, and the back door of the church is the front door to the cults. So one reason you need to be equipped is to guard yourself against false doctrine and to guard your family as well. There's all kinds of reasons that they get in. Some people don't know any better. They don't realize what they're getting into. Some people just don't have the arguments. They don't realize what they're getting into and then they go, they go deep into it and it's too late. I will agree with you that there's a lot of sincerity. I believe that they're nice people. I, I, don't, have a, I don't see them as you know, a different class of humans, uh, but I, I see them as people to be reached and I think that's how we got to keep it. Number two, why is the, J, the JW building called the Kingdom Hall instead of a church? They're very focused on the, uh, the coming kingdom of Jehovah. And so uh, the, the, the Lord's return and the, the kingdom to come and that kind of thing. So, and then they do a lot to differentiate themselves from the Christian church. So whereas they used to say that Jesus died on a cross, now it's a torture state. They, they, uh, they've done many things where they seem to be close to Christian doctrine and then they've tried to differentiate themselves. And that's... that's um, what I would understand the reason behind that. Who is Jesus to a Jehovah's Witness? Question number three. Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God. He is Michael the archangel. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is an angel who uh, became a man, and when he became a man, he gave up that angelic essence. Once he moved from Michael to Jesus, if you will, 
he stopped being that angel and started being the greatest man who ever lived. They do not believe that he is God. They, they say it this way, he's not almighty God, he's a mighty God. They believe that Jesus is a second lesser God than Jehovah. So sometimes what you have happen is a Jehovah's Witness comes to your house and they say, we are here to introduce to you Jehovah's kingdom. You know, Jehovah is coming and the end of the world's coming and Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. And they often say, oh, the Christians have this doctrine of the Trinity that's straight from hell. Three and one, one and three, a curious equation indeed. And then you say, wait a minute. Don't you believe that Jesus is the second lesser God? So I'm a monotheist by definition. Mono meaning one. Theism is God. Monotheism is we believe in one God. So Jehovah's Witnesses, guess what they are? polytheists they believe there's more than one god although they'll never come to your door with that information now you might say well where do they get this idea that jesus is a second lesser god well here's the thing that makes this interesting how are you god if you were created they believe that jesus is a created being they believe that jesus is the first and greatest creation of god and that Jehovah made him first as the first of his ways. And they, t they twist Proverbs 8 uh, to get to this. And then what they say is that Jehovah and Jesus hung out for perhaps billions of years. And then the world was made through Jesus. So everybody take your Bible, turn to Isaiah 44, 24. Isaiah 44, 24. Now, I'll show you a couple of passages which are famous ones, but... Let's start here. Speaking of the Creator, you, I think most of you know who have studied your Bible in some depth on these subjects that Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 are God, Yahweh, saying that uh, He knows of no other God's form before Him or after Him. He is it. He has cornered the market on deity. Take a look at Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, see, see the Lord there. When you see Lord capitalized like that, that is Y-H-W-H. That's the, the best we have in our, uh, you know, looking at it from English, we have the consonants. So whenever you see Lord capitalized in your Bible, that's the divine name. And the closest that we have is Y-H-W-H, okay? We don't have the consonants, but most scholars believe that that is probably Yahweh or Yahweh. It's, it's said like that, the divine name. The Jews took the vowels out because they were very careful about writing the name of God and speaking the name of God. I, the Lord, am the maker of how many things? All things. Stretching out the heavens, how? By myself. Spreading out the earth, how did he do it? All alone. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses say, no, Jehovah made Jesus and then the worlds and everything that was created was made through Jesus. Jesus was the first of Jehovah's ways and then he became the channel by which Jehovah made all other things outside of Jesus. Is that what your Bible says? The Bible says that God, this is the name of God, I the Lord, I'm the maker of how many things? All things. I stretched out the heavens, how? By myself. I spread out the earth, how? All alone. 
The, the creator, God himself, that made all things said that when he did it, he did it by himself. There was no counsel of the gods. There was no almighty God and junior partner mighty God. God himself, whoever God is, and that's, that's where the debate is. The triune God is what I'm going to argue. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made the world and everything in it. Now take a look. Go over to Colossians chapter 1 for a second. Colossians chapter 1. Here's where we're going to get into the scriptures, and these are um, some of the pet texts of Jehovah's Witnesses. So this is where they go a lot of the time. We, if you've been with us on Sundays, we just studied this, but let me just point it out to you. Colossians 1.15, I'm talking fast because I want to try to get to your, all your questions. Colossians 1.15 says, He, Jesus in context, is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit, right? The firstborn of all creation. That is the Greek word, Pratatakos. For by him, context, Jesus, how many things were made? All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. Notice this sweep, these sweeping statements. Visible and invisible, the visible creation and invisible principalities and powers, which are delineated here. Thrones, dominions, probably angelic ranks, rulers, authorities. All things have been created What's your Bible say? By him and for him. Now, Jehovah made the world by himself and he stretched out the heavens all alone and he made all things. Then who is the creator? Well, Yahweh is the creator, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, another passage you want to look at is John 1. Go over there for a second. I think this is the famous one that many of you have debated with Jehovah's Witnesses? Take a look. In the beginning, John 1.1 was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, everybody, I think, who studied this knows John 1.14 tells us the Word became flesh. Everybody agrees. Jehovah's Witnesses agree. That's Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. How many things? All things, John 1.3, all things came into being by him and apart from him. What's your Bible say? Nothing came into being that has come into being. Again, I take you to Isaiah 44, 24. How can Jesus be the creator of everything and be a created being? It just doesn't work. It is not biblical. And so what you want to do is you want to stick on the fact that Jesus is the creator and of course, these passages teach that he's God. Now everybody flip over to Revelation 3. Now this is one of the sticky passages that they'll try to throw at you. And I want to I give you some of the main ones that they'll come at you with. This is Revelation 3. Look at verse 14. If you're having trouble finding Revelation, we need to talk. Um, Revelation 3.14 says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen... The faithful and true witness, Revelation 3, 14. The beginning of the creation of God says this. See that word beginning? That is the word arche. They say, you see, Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. That means he had a beginning. No. All throughout the book of Revelation, God says, I am the beginning and the end. This word in Revelation arche, which is used multiple times, means RK is where we get the English word architect. What's that sound like to you? Creator. 
right? Designer. Well, to be the beginning of the creation of God doesn't mean he had a beginning. It means that he is the source or the origin of creation. Everybody with me? So they're going to say he had a beginning, but this actually is a strong deity text. It means that he's actually the beginner. Some scholars have put it this way, John 1, 1, before the beginning began, Jesus was there. Because if, remember, when creation comes into existence, most scholars believe that's when time began. We, we have passages that say that uh, before time began. You've seen some of those passages. If Jesus was there before time began, then he was there before the beginning began. And if he's there before the beginning began, everybody with me? He must be the beginner. I know. That's the way I like to say it, too. So there you go. That's, that's a little bit. But So they believe he's a created being. He's an angel. Now, here's a key thing. And i got to show you this one. Go to Hebrews 1. So in, in Hebrews 1, and let me ask you this question. Did Jesus ever receive worship when he was on the planet? Can you think of some instances? Shout them out. Did he receive worship somewhere? Can you think? On Palm Sunday? Doubting Thomas said to him, My Lord, John 20, 28, and my God. Now, I've heard some Jehovah's Witnesses actually argue that uh, Thomas was acting like a valley boy back in the first century. And when he saw the resurrected Christ, he went, Oh my Lord, oh my God! I'm not sure they all say that, but a first century Jew would never treat the name of God that way. And, and here's the thing. After saying that, Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Did he commend him for his worship? Yes. Now, in uh, the birth narratives... When Jesus is born, the angels are singing glory to God in the highest. There's three wise men that show up. The three wise guys dressed in black. They were Italian. Just kidding. They weren't. They show up and they present their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they worship a little kid. What? Oh, yes. In the book of Matthew, you find that. I think it's chapter 2, verse 11. Do you remember when Jesus calms the sea in Matthew 14? And the disciples, what did they do? They worshipped him. Every time you see him get worship in the Bible, he commends it. He receives it. He doesn't rebuke it. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 don't do that. I'm just an angel, elevated angel. No, he receives the worship. Look at Hebrews 1, verse 8, the father speaking of the son of the Son, he says, Thy throne, what's your Bible say? O God is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Go back and uh, look at verse 6. When he again brings his, the firstborn into the world, the firstborn does speak of preeminence, not the first one born. He says, let what? All the angels of God worship him. Now you guys know that one of the big rules for God is he doesn't share his glory with another. You're to worship him alone. You're not to make idols. Why would the father tell all the angels to worship the son and break his own law unless Jesus is God? Are you with me? 
This, these, these passages have actually brought some Jehovah's Witnesses uh, to see the light. And um, as you read on in the passage, the father continues to address the son. Quoting Old Testament passages, he says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. Keep reading. And thou, Lord, in the beginning did what? Lay the foundation of the earth. You see the father still addressing the son. And the heavens are, what? The works of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. They will become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou will roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will, what? Not come to an end. Write in your Bible, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is God. And see, this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses struggle on the nature of the Son. And of course, we know we, some Christians struggle with it too, but this is what the Bible teaches. So this is a big one, you guys. Who is Jesus to Jehovah's Witnesses? A second lesser God, an angel, but not one who's worthy of our worship. Do you know in, in older... Um, Documents for Jehovah's Witnesses, they taught the worship of Jesus and then they changed it. At one time they said to worship Jesus is great and now they say anybody who worships Jesus is basically committing sin. Wow. Why don't Jehovah's Witnesses celebrate birthdays or other holidays? I don't know, but this is one of the biggest bummers of all time <laughs> to be a Jehovah's Witness. Don't you think? How many of you milk your birthday for all you can get out of it? I know some people who have week-long birthday celebrations, right? you got to keep it going, right? Do you know it's my birthday? It's my birthday. Anyway, so there were, there's two chronicled um, birthday accounts in the Bible. One is the birthday of Pharaoh. The other is the birthday of Herod. John the Baptist lost his head at the birthday party of Herod. And then it was either the baker or the cupbearer, the baker, right? The baker lost his head at Pharaoh's birthday party. Genesis, uh, I think it's 40. So they say, hey, whenever you see a birthday celebrated in the Bible, people are losing their heads. <laughs> so this is probably not a good thing. However, do you know that on Pharaoh's birthday, something actually good happened. The cupbearer was restored to his position. They ignore that. And only focus on the bad part, which the bad part's pretty bad. And so they say, this is a pagan thing. Bad things happen when people celebrate their birthdays. But there's evidence of people celebrating their birthdays long throughout history. In fact, how would anybody really know how old they were unless they were marking birthdays? Even Jesus' age is mentioned in the Bible, right? And so his birth is celebrated by the angels. Sometimes when people say, I don't think we should be celebrating Christmas. Look, I'm not bowing down to my Christmas tree. Oh, Christmas tree. Oh. No, no, no. Not doing that. But to celebrate the birth of Christ is actually biblical. The angels did it. So I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, so there you go. Other holidays, they associate Christmas with paganism. But I showed you the Christmas party in 1926. Not sure how many Jehovah's Witnesses know about that party. Um, so they, they do this to differentiate themselves from other groups, especially Christians. Why does nobody sign 
articles in the Watchtower. They say they do it for humility purposes. In fact, their New World Translation, which is here, um, their scholars, their so-called Greek scholars, were not named in the translation. So Christian theologians were saying, uh, we got some problems with some of the way this, that you translated some of these passages, especially about the deity of Christ. Could we know who your scholars are? Oh, no. For humility purposes, their names have been hidden in some secret files. Oh, for humility purposes. Because look, if you're a scholar, you would want to talk to somebody and say, why did you translate that passage that way? You have uh, translations, NIV and so forth. They'll list the scholars that were involved in the translation process. Why should it be hidden? If they're such great scholars, let's hear their arguments for how they, why they translated what they translated. But uh, So I think it's a cover-up, frankly. Uh, JW's had a bad beginning, but many of the people... Churches aren't aware of the beginnings or say it has changed. How does JW compare to the Protestant church today? All right, so um, here's what they say about that. Yeah, I, I hear you. <laughs> Makes me want to cry too. Anyway. <laughs> so, they say that <clears throat> what happens is they're getting more light on subjects. So, um, what happens is, uh, we got an angry phone call, by the way. I, I did a Sunday morning message on KKLA, and I, I mentioned uh, a false prophecy by Jehovah's Witnesses, and my wife was in the office. This lady called and said, whoever that pastor was on KKLA, I got a bone to pick with him. I'm so glad my wife was the gatekeeper there. Praise the Lord, it was awesome. Well, <clears throat> she couldn't get a word in edgewise. This lady just wanted to Get, and she said, how dare you? That's so mean. And how dare you? We've, we've corrected our mistakes. Here's what Jehovah's Witnesses say. They say, you're not a false prophet if you admit your mistakes. So you say, Jesus Christ is coming back in 1925 and it doesn't happen. And people say, you're a false prophet. You say, no, I'm not. I, 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 I admit I was wrong. <laughs> but that sounds really noble until you think about the options that you have. If you said Jesus is coming in October of 1925 and he doesn't show up, what are your options? Uh, well, don't set any more dates, but here, here's, so is it very noble to say, uh, I was wrong. Well, we all know you were wrong, right? So here's the argument Jehovah's Witnesses say. They say we're getting more light on things. The light gets brighter and brighter and brighter. So one Christian scholar said, so what you're telling me is that you know, in 10 years, you, you, you guys get different illumination into the scriptures, and so you correct your mistakes, right? Right. That makes us noble. So what if you believe what you believe right now is wrong, and you're hanging your whole future on something that could change again in 10 years? Does that trouble you? Ah. Uh, uh, that would trouble me. I would want to make sure that, as far as the essentials are concerned, we've got this thing nailed down pretty well, wouldn't you? Anyway, okay. Why do they refuse to celebrate their own birth from their mother? We covered that. What is the reasoning behind their ideas concerning medical procedures? They believe that to take blood is equivalent to eating blood. Uh, Genesis chapter 9 talks about not eating blood as the pagans do. They say that if you were sick and in the hospital and you couldn't eat through your mouth, you could get intravenously fed. So they say if you take a blood transfusion, 
you're just skipping your mouth and you're getting blood through your vein and it would be the same as eating the blood. So that's what they say. Now, now get this. When someone receives a blood transfusion, what's the purpose? To sustain life, right? When, when a pagan ate blood or did something, um, you know, pagan-like with blood, what were they trying to do? They were trying to get power or appease a false god. There is not a correspondence. But Jehovah's Witnesses believe there is. Their organization teaches that to take a blood transfusion is the same as eating blood in a pagan style. And they believe they can be condemned for it. And therefore, that's why they uh, refuse it. In fact, uh, I know for a long time, I think this is true today, they carry a medical card around. And if they went into the hospital and they needed a blood transfusion, that card tells the doctor to let them die before giving them a blood transfusion. Now Jehovah's Witnesses are saying that if you took a blood transfusion in a moment of weakness and you're truly repentant of it, you can be restored back into fellowship. They're lightening their grip slowly. They're saying if you had a moment of weakness or whatever, you were pressured into it, you didn't know, then maybe you can be restored back into the good graces. They won't join the military because they don't want nothing to do with this evil system of things, is how they put it. And the prediction of 1973 was probably just another one of their uh, uh, predicting the second coming of Christ. We are out of time. I, I, I know, and it, it goes so fast, you guys, but I want to honor the time, and I thank you for the questions. And when my wife and I were driving here tonight, I was like, honey, I don't know how much we can do in one night. But, but I think we've covered a good amount of ground. And uh, the, if you have more questions or there were questions that we couldn't get to, we're, we'll probably throw up some um, videos that will um, you know, highlight some of the questions that we weren't able to get to. But I hope that that was able to give you a good overview. And I know it moved quickly. I also want to thank you for being here and, and asking your questions. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do a final song. Father, we are so grateful for uh, your, your word to us. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that we can get some answers to uh, these questions. This is a really, it, it is a deep subject, and it, it deserves probably a 10-week course. But but I believe we've gotten some uh, headway into what we believe, why we believe it, what our arguments should be. And Lord, most of all, we want to give a reason for the hope that we have, and we want to do it with gentleness and respect. For those around us who we love that are still in this system, uh, we pray for their souls. We pray that you would move them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. We pray that they would come out and know the grace of God. I, I think of what... Um, was shared this morning um, by a woman who didn't know the love of Christ and encountered it, was in a system where you know, everything was works-based and shame-based and she found freedom in Christ. I pray that many of our Jehovah's Witness friends will find the same in the true Christ. It's in his name I pray and all God's people said, amen. amen.